0: Hello. Welcome again to the Elm City Vineyard. My name is Matt. Um, and um, during, during the weeks, um, I, uh, I, I teach uh, at Neal College. I teach a class in the spring called Life Worth Living. And um, recently, we, were, uh, we, we read based, you know, on a number of different religious, philosophical sorts of texts trying to ask this question, what makes for a good life? What sort of life should we want for ourselves, for the people around us, people we care about, for the world? And um, uh, we were uh, reading uh, from the Hebrew Bible, from the, what in the church we might call the, the Old Testament a couple weeks ago. And we were talking about what does it mean for, um, for the circumstances of our life to be good? What, what, is, what should we hope for in our lives? And um, having just, just read a, a bunch of different stories, some of, uh, uh, some of, well, at least related to some of the stories that we'll talk about today, um, my students just zeroed in on, on one thing. They said, you know what? When I begin to, when we first think about this question of what should we hope for We tend to think about our lives, like, you know, I don't know, I'd like a job, like enough money to feed myself, (laughs) clothe myself, house myself. Um, But these texts, they seem to be mostly worried about legacy. They seem to mostly be worried about how life is going for people, like, generations into the future. (laughs) Like, for for life to go well for these folks seems to be um, not just for my little life to go well. Um, In fact, maybe my life won't go all that well, but it will for generations to come. We've been thinking over these last few weeks, as Todd said, about blessing one another across generations, blessing uh, generations in the church. This really needs to come with like instructions. I I got it. Um, Pick the top. Which side do you think is the top? All right. any of, you, any of you doing uh, user interface design, come look at this later. Um, all right. Um, but we've been talking about what it, might, what it might mean. What are our responsibilities to one another to bless one another across generations? And yes, we can think of that in more sort of typical sort of generations. But We've also been thinking specifically about sort of the, the very compact generations that have begun to pile up even in this local church community. Uh, gen zero, the the the, gen, the generation that was uh, involved in the the New Haven Vineyard, out of which this church was planted. Gen one involved in planting that church, um, that is this one. <laughs> um, gen two, uh, uh, the folks uh, who who joined in a in a in a new season of pastoral leadership under uh, Josh Williams' leadership, uh, who's still our our senior pastor, our lead pastor to this day. And Gen three, those who have joined. Um, In and around the the pandemic, which has been a totally different sort of season of what it's meant to be together um, in all sorts of ways in our lives, and certainly including here in the church. And we've been considering um, quite often this sort of the real costs and the benefits and the possibilities of what we can do in blessing. One another, what we can do in refusing to bless one another, the harm we can cause, the, the, the blessings that we can share and impart with to one another. And here we are in this last talk, and this last talk I want to look in a slightly different direction. We're going to see some really familiar things, we'll go through that, of sort of like things not necessarily being super smooth as they cross the generations, but this Sunday I want to think in particular about what happens when we like just completely drop the ball, like, blessing, like, doesn't happen. Maybe, like, the opposite of blessing happens. What does, what does God do in the midst of that? Sort of spoiler alert is that we follow, we, we in this church believe we have encountered a God who is extravagantly generous in blessing. And so when, 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 when conflict happens, when divisions and splits happen among the people of God, God just like blesses both sides. And God doesn't in the midst of that like lose track of justice. Doesn't it's not that God doesn't care about harm that was done or that God sort of can't recognize that there's differences between the sides. But in the end of the day God blesses. So when we fail to bless God nevertheless blesses. And the story we want to talk about today is the story of um, Hagar, the story that's been so important, um, especially in the African-American community, uh, within the American church, um, but across the generations, the story of this woman. And I'm just going to jump right into that story. We'll pick up, it has to do with the story of Abram, and yeah, at the beginning, um, we'll, we'll see, as Tina was talking about last week, some, the operation of some cultural scripts. The background is this. God has already made a promise to this man named Abram. You may know him as Abraham. God's made this promise, among other things. Maybe this is like the kernel of the first sort of promise. I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And there's talk about um, more, more children than, this, than the grains of sand on, on the sea or the stars in the sky. Anybody know which of those is a larger number? Sorry, science geek. We're, we'll get to that. This will, this will come back around towards the end. The stars by many orders of magnitude, actually. Make, like, not even close. Um, anyway, so, uh, but the thought is, like, you are going to have, like, lots and lots of children, this sort of legacy, sort of blessing, what it means for your life to go well, right? This is the promise that, that God has made to Abram, but there's a promise, and maybe you know this story, the problem, the, 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 there's a promise, but there's a problem, and the problem is that Abram has precisely zero children, all right? and like you know you may be familiar with like the like the the law, uh, the law of sort of exponential growth right like you can like there's still hope but like exponential growth on zero is just zero like like, like we got we got to get past zero first and, it, and and abram's getting old his wife is getting old things are not looking good and in, and in this moment, Sarai, his, Abram's wife, is starting to feel like the problem. All right, well, that's back to some of these cultural scripts that Tina was talking about last week, right? And these sort of patriarchal expectations, the value of a woman is in her ability to give children, and because of that sort of patriarchal, oppressive structure, Sarai then starts to look at what she can do in order to sort of work the problem. She's looking for a solution. She proposes a solution, and she exploits the, the power that she does have to try to accomplish God's purposes on her own. And what she does is she looks at Hagar, this, um, this slave, this, this servant of hers, and she is triply marginalized, right? So, so Sarai is working, like, uh, with a, the deck is already stacked against her. She's a woman in a society in which uh, her only value is something she can't deliver, the, 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 the birth of a, of a, of a child. Um, but, but Hagar is, like, triply marginalized, triply vulnerable. A woman, yes, but also a foreigner and a slave, an enslaved person. And Sarai exploits this power imbalance. She, she, her plan is she will give Hagar to Abram for him to have sex with, and Sarai. The logic is Sarai will produce by her power over Hagar what she cannot on her own, a child, for Abram. This is intense. I mean, I don't know how often you've, like, taken a step back and considered, like, what this, what this, what is happening in this story. Maybe if you've grown up with sort of um, Sunday school stories, you're maybe too familiar with the Bible. Like, this is extreme. Sexual exploitation, bodily exploitation. This is, like, Margaret, Margaret Atwood's, like, the handmaid's tale sort of stuff, Right? And maybe it seems like it's beyond what any of us might do because it is so extreme, but I take it that there's actually a dynamic here that's identifiable maybe even in our own lives, in our culture. Sarai has taken it on herself to do what only God can do. Let me say that again. Sarai has taken it on herself to do what only God can do. And so, yeah, exactly, uh-oh. And so how are you going to get that done? Well, inevitably, she reaches for whatever power she has in order to sort of play at divinity. And that is a dangerous place to be, right? To be a human being playing at divinity and looking at whatever power you have at hand. And the same goes for us whenever we... Hmm, often? Whenever? Hmm. Well, we'll come back to that. Often, no... <laughs> I hang around with theologians during the week and they're always catching me on like, ah, do you mean always? All right, I right. but when we try to do what only God can do, we outstrip the bounds of our God-given authority. That is true always. And often we do so by oppressing and exploiting others. We play at God, and in playing at God, we oppress. The people around us. And often in a world of broken structures, I mean, gender has been broken in the story of Genesis since Genesis 3. It's like one of the first signs of of the fall. What's broken is this oppressive relationship between men and women. And and so, quite often in this broken world, this exploitation takes the form that we see here oppressed people oppressing each other for the benefit of the oppressor class, right? A woman taking advantage of a woman under her power in order to benefit a man. Sarai, under patriarchal pressures, oppresses Hagar, who's under even more pressures for the benefit of Abram, who sits on top of this particular food chain. And at many points in the story, he actually seems sort of willfully ignorant of all the harm perpetrated for his benefit. Now, we could put ourselves in any one of those slots, right? Um... It's not the point of the talk today. But you could put yourself in any one of those slots. And this is how the world, I take it still, works. Oppression incentivizes the oppressed to exploit one another while oppressors profit. And oppressors are incentivized to remain as ignorant as possible of all of this. Except, of course, when it comes to pointing fingers at all those oppressed people who keep oppressing one another. Okay. The whole dynamic here is deeply ironic, and this is why, from the beginning, I will just name, this is a dangerous talk for me, like a man and a white man, <laughs> to, talk, to give. Um, but, this is, but this is what we see what's, ha- what's happening in the Scripture. And this, and this deeply ironic narrative blinds Sarai to the way that she is harming Hagar. When Hagar conceives and Sarai becomes jealous, she takes her complaint to Abram. Sarai said to Abram, it says, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my slave girl to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you, Abram, and me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Now, fair warning, the Lord's judgment is going to seem relatively absent through quite a bit of this story That's actually precisely what's going to rub many of us the wrong way as we keep going. And while we may not join with Sarai in her complaint here, by the end of the story, I think we may find ourselves seeing something similar. May the Lord judge between you and me. But in this case, God's silence is powerful and understandable. Why? Because Sarai's anger shows just how blind she and Abram are to the harm that they're actually causing, right? Um, uh, Bible scholar uh, Wilda Gaffney says this. She says, "Um, God's silence is a response to Sarai's charge that God judged between her and Abram. Abram has not wronged Sarai Abram and Sarai both wrong Hagar, and God does not permit them to compound that wrongdoing by destroying her and her child. Sarai's lost the thread, right, of what's really going on if she's turned this into somehow a dispute between her and her husband. All right, it's a mess. And as we come to, have come to expect, perhaps over, uh, during the course of this series, there are serious consequences for the next generation. I'm skipping ahead a little bit. We'll go back. But uh, eventually, an angel of the Lord admits as much, admits that um, there are going to be serious consequences. Hagar's son Ishmael, this messenger of the Lord, says, will be a wild ass of a man with his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall live at odds with all his kin. Ishmael had nothing to do with all this, but there are consequences for his life, consequences for generations that come after. He shall live at odds with all his kin. Again, I think we can recognize this. Often the main consequence when we fail to bless one another across, across generations is relational estrangement. Power is pressed to the point of exploitation, relationship is broken, and estrangement just propagates through the generations. And this is perhaps exactly as we could have predicted. This is just how human relations work when we are left to our own devices. But this is not the whole story of God's blessing work. Even already, as I said, I skipped some key pieces because the sort of moral here, or the next thing we consider is this way that God blesses anyway. But it gets worse (laughs) before it gets better. So, um, Abram, trying to keep peace with his wife, falls back on the scripts of power. Hagar is Sarai's slave. Sarai can solve her own problem, is Abram's logic. So, Sarai further abuses Hagar. And Hagar flees for the wilderness for safety where she encounters a messenger of the Lord. And I'll, I'll say, like, these messengers, like, speak in first person as God. Like, this is like, this, I don't know, this is like a pretty, this is, it's actually, it, it's intentionally ambiguous, right, in certain ways in the text. We'll see here and there. Like, is this God or is this like an angel? Um, anyway, H- Hagar may have run into, like, God in some sort of human form. Um, I think we know something about That kind of thing. All right. So, she's out in the wilderness, and this messenger asks, where have you come from, and where are you going? God wants to know Hagar's story. God sees her, as we will see in a moment. But God also wants to give Hagar agency to tell her own story. And Hagar answers that she is running away from Sarai. The angel tells her to return, which we, which I am not going to talk about. <laughs> which I, I, I will just say that I will just note that I find that deeply disturbing, um, and, and and troubling. But before she does return, the angel adds. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will so greatly, it's like it's got to be the Lord, not the angel. Anyway, I will so greatly multiply your offspring that they cannot be counted for multitude. And then the the angel of the Lord said to her, Now you have conceived and shall bear a son. You shall call him Ishmael, for the Lord has given heed to your affliction. Ishmael, uh, God has heard. And then, and then, you, and then, and then, the, the statement of, of what the sort of natural consequences of all this will in fact be um, on Ishmael's life. God hears Hagar in her affliction. The abuse that she has suffered has not gone unnoticed. As I said, that that name Ishmael literally means God has heard. And God commits to bless her. That blessing language, right? It sounds sort of like the blessing that God gave to Abram to begin with uncountable offspring. Hagar is the only woman in Scripture to receive this sort of promise. And make this great nation. But it's not just about what God promises to do for Hagar in the future. There's also this intimate encounter with God. There's the encounter itself. It's so impactful that Hagar goes on to give God a name. So she named the Lord who spoke to her U.R.L. Roy, for she said, I, have I really seen God and remained alive after seeing him? It's a little bit puzzling. Like, this, this messenger is pretty close to just like the real thing. She's had this encounter with God, and she is actually the only person in the Bible to give God a name. God gives God's names. But this woman has had such a profound encounter, right? This, this is this God, who, this God who sees, and this God whom have I really seen God and survived? So this is this extraordinarily powerful, intimate encounter with God, and it seems like it's not just in spite of what had happened, but in part because of it. There's this special place of intimacy for Hagar with God because of what she's experienced. And you've got to hear me on this. I don't mean that in the sort of like everything happens for a reason sort of sense. No, I mean more like even in my darkest hour sort of sense, right? When God shows up in a moment like that, there's something that God does that we don't, we don't experience any other way. There's a perspective on God, a way of seeing God, as Hagar herself says, that we don't get any other way. And I think there's some of us here this afternoon that we, and we, we can relate so profoundly to Hagar's experience. Maybe you've, maybe you've suffered much and suffered much at the hands of the people of God. Maybe you've suffered much at the hands of this church. Maybe you've suffered much at the hands of people in this room. And the crazy promise of God is that God wants to meet you precisely in that hurt, in that affliction. God hears you, God sees you, and you can see God in that place. And this is really the key for today. As important as it is that we do the work to bless across the generations, if and when we don't, God's work of blessing still goes forward. When we fail to bless others, God's work of blessing still goes forward. When others fail to bless us, God's work of blessing still goes forward. Because our God of blessing is relentless. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do the work to, 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 to bless one another, to partner with God in what God is doing. It just means that uh, there's, there's no thwarting. There's no, there's no uh, chance that we have that we are going to thwart God's plan to bless the people of God. Now, that word of, oh, I'm going the wrong, am I going the wrong way? Oh, now I'm lost, I don't remember what's up and what's down. There we go, it's that way. Is it? Nope, I'm like circling. Man, I'm going backwards, sorry. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll catch up eventually. Actually, I'm gonna do this this way. Um, Wow! It really went went crazy. Okay, cool. So this word, this word, um, affliction, that shows up here, is actually a really important word um, in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, this this is the word that's used to describe the affliction of the Israelites when they were enslaved in Egypt. Um, God saw their affliction and moved to set them free. That's what God says he has seen Hagar suffer. In fact, when you start to look at it, the story of Hagar has all these sorts of parallels with the story of the Exodus. There's the affliction there's slavery as the context of the affliction, though in this case it's an Egyptian oppressed by a sort of proto-Israelite. There's an escape to the wilderness, um, not just this once in Genesis 16, but again in Genesis 21, which ends up being sort of permanent, when Hagar, when Hagar is like thrown out by Abraham and Sarah, um, and God meets Hagar in the wilderness and provides for her. That, that estrangement, I take it in part, is like, it's like relational estrangement in part for the sake of safety uh, or something that, that's like, like a good that God somehow rescues out of this terrible situation. Though in this case, um, again, there's a sort of inversion. In this case, uh, there's the escape into the wilderness in order to go towards Egypt, not away from Egypt. It's this sort of exodus going on. But once you see that parallel, I don't know, I begin to wonder, like, where are the frogs and, like, and the pestilence and the river of blood and God moving mightily in, in like, righteous judgment against Abram and Sarai? Where is that? Even not only does God not move in that sort of like recognizable righteous judgment um, against Abram and Sarai, God blesses Abram and Sarai, and that is maybe even harder—the scandal of God's blessing. See, Abram and Sarai get their own visit from a divine messenger. They receive um, their new names, Abraham and Sarah, and God renews God's covenant with Abraham through circumcision. And when Abraham asks that God would work God's purposes through Ishmael, because God's still, that's the only child that Abraham has, God insists again that Sarah will bear a son and that blessing will come through him. Oh, that Ishmael might live in your sight, Abraham says. God said, No, but your wife Sarah shall bear you a son, and you shall name him Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. goes on, As for Ishmael, I've heard you, and I will bless him and make him fruitful and exceedingly numerous. And he shall be the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation but my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this season next year. Uh, At at this point, Ishmael's like 13 years old. And actually, when Abraham first uh, follows God's uh, renewal of the covenant in in circumcision, um, it's Ishmael who's er, circumcised. But I don't know about you, but after reading a text, text like that, like, you begin to wonder, like, like, whose side is God on? Right? It's maddening. God is, 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 he, is he, like, here to protect Hagar, or is he here to just stand with Abraham and Sarah? And in any case, what's um, promised here happens. Fourteen years after Ishmael was born, um, Sarah has her son. And that's actually what occasions Sarah finally throwing Hagar and Ishmael out into the, world, into the wilderness. Um, Sarah feels like she can't risk her son Isaac having to compete with the teenager Ishmael for his father's affection and blessing. Abraham gives them like a little bit of water and a little something to eat and they just like send them into the wilderness. And if God didn't intervene, we have the sen- sense that, uh, that they would have perished. And yet, God persists to bless Abraham and Sarah, Sarah, and to do it through their child, Isaac. Not because God doesn't see or doesn't care about the way Abraham and Sarah mistreat Hagar. Not because God doesn't see the estrangement that's going to run down through the generations because of what they've done. And it's not because God has taken Abraham and Sarah's side against Hagar. But because God can't be dissuaded from the mission of blessing to which God had committed God's self when making a covenant with Abraham to begin with. And look, I, I, I guess there's, pro, there's maybe some obvious good news here for some of us. As much as there may be those of us here who identify with Hagar or Ishmael, there may also be those of us here who identify with Abraham and Sarah. Maybe we identify with different ones of them in different parts of our lives. In any case, if that's you, if you're sort of, in the, you're sort of wondering, thinking about the ways that you like, use and abuse power, I suppose you can hear God sees the abuse that you dole out, God's not party to it. God's not going to co sign it or endorse it. It grieves God's heart. It harms God's children. It sows division in the family of God, divisions that may last for generations. But our enmity toward God can't cut us off from God's good purposes. We are still called to be God's family. Our sin does not disqualify us from God's purposes, which means, crucially, we don't have to defend our innocence in order to grasp at blessing. We don't have to defend our so-called innocence in order to grasp at blessing. Maybe that's good news for some in this room today. But that's not the only struggle here, right? Perhaps what's even harder is to deal with a God who continues to bless even those who have caused us harm. Again, pestilence, frogs, divine retribution, like that makes sense to me. Everlasting blessing even to those who have done us profound harm, the sort of harm that can only come in the context of a family. Like what kind of divine response is this? And this is that moment where maybe Sarai's complaint from before comes back around, May the Lord judge between you and me. Hagar doesn't say that, but she might have, and we might say it on her behalf. And yet the Lord's judgment doesn't look sometimes the way that we had hoped. And if you're in that place wondering what sort of judgment, what sort of justice this is, I feel like God has something important that God wants to say to you. God sees what those who have harmed you have done. God sees that it was wrong. God is not blind to that, and God is not going to co-sign or endorse any of it. And yet God still blesses them. The one doesn't discount the other. Somehow God can judge without cutting people off from blessing. God can judge without cutting people off from blessing. God can deal with the demands of justice without cutting people off. In fact, among the people of God, that's often how God works. And that has some serious consequences. For one, it means that you can't read God's judgments off of God's blessings. You can't read God's judgments off of God's blessings. If you take take a, a path, and then it, and, and you're pretty sure that like it was like not a godly thing to do, and then God ends up blessing you on the other side, that doesn't like that doesn't like that doesn't solve the problem of how you got there, right? It's not like oh well, well the Lord's still blessing me, so I guess that was all good. Mm-mm. Nope. This group of people did that, or this, right, this, this, all right, we can, we can imagine, right? Like, this church did that, this nation did that, God, God seems to be blessing, so they must have been in the right. Nope. Even harder, these people who I, kn- I know they're in the wrong, God's still blessing, uh, I don't, I don't get to, I, I, I can't, I can't um, demand that God refuse to bless them. You can't predict the removal of God's blessings based on insight into God's sense of justice. Now that's something about who God is and how God works. But maybe most challenging of all maybe there's in there a suggestion of a way that we might live in imitation of God's extravagant generosity. Can we do that? Can we name injustice and still move in blessing? Certainly not without God's work in our lives. I said we come back around to... um, Space nerdiness. I I introduced myself to someone the other day as as like the kid who went to both Bible camp and space camp in the same summer. This is me, all right. I want to tell you a little bit about um, an experiment that sort of happened, a discovery that happened by accident. Some guys were just trying to like work out their telescope they're just trying to get like the baseline just like figure out like what silence looked like so they're just pointing it at nothing and and then getting a sense of what nothing looked like on the other end of the telescope but no matter where they pointed their telescope there 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 was no nothing to be found um, there was always something this there's this microwave radiation and literally they thought like there must have been like like a like a factory down the street or like, at, at one point their, their best guess was that there were pigeons who had like made their home inside the telescope. <laughs> um, like literally there's like, what is wrong? What is wrong? Well, it turns out what they had sort of stumbled upon is what's called the cosmic microwave, radi- uh, cosmic microwave radiation background. It's evidence, uh, this first got people sort of thinking about a big bang Um maybe the, sort of, uh, the, the radiation still left over from that sort of beginning of everything. I want to suggest to you that the love of God is very much like this cosmic microwave radiation. That, by the way, you've got to think about that like a projection like you'd have of the globe, but from the inside. There's no outside that map. Every edge turns over to the other edges around it. Everywhere you look, and, and they had to turn the contrast up to like, like past 11 in order to get any differentiation in it at all. It's more or less uniform everywhere you look. I think the love of God is something like this. Yes, the love of God is the foundation of the universe. The echoes of that founding love are in every direction. But unlike the cosmic microwave radiation background, the love of God is also the destiny of this universe. God's persistent blessing is the presence of the future drawing us forward. And I wonder if that isn't some of the purpose of God sending blessings off on divergent paths. As we divide ourselves, or even as God sort of separates for safety, but then God also then blesses both sides. God sort of somehow blesses even across that separation in order to remind us always and everywhere that we are meant to be at home with God and with one another, and so that we can do, perhaps, as God does, bless the people of God always and everywhere. A few, oh, I might pick this up backwards again. I'm I'm telling you, it's like a comedy routine, unintentionally. Oh, yeah, we were going to talk about the love of God. All right, we did that. A few reflection questions that are all grounded in the love of God. First, my hunch is that if you've been harmed by the people of God, or not hunch, this is my conviction from Scripture, right? If you've been harmed by the people of God, God sees you, God hears you. And God has a particular blessing for you. And I guess my hunch is that God might be wanting to sort of share, help you see that blessing, invite you into that blessing here today, right now. Second, we can, we can ask ourselves this, are, are, are you, is there anywhere in your life that you're trying to defend your innocence for fear of losing a blessing that God is committed to giving you anyway? I think I have to tell you a quick story. When I was um, just graduated from college and had, absolute, uh, and had virtually no money, um, I was very stressed about money. I've told you some of this story, some of you have heard this story before. Um, some money showed up in my bank account, like right when I needed it. And it was from, it was like my paycheck was too big. And I, and I had to consider to myself, like, what should I do about this? Should I tell my boss? But I thought, no, 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 I, you know what, I must be so harried and so, because I'm like so stressed out about money, and we were like planning a wedding, and anyway, I'll just, I'll just keep it, right? Um, until a few weeks later, then my boss comes to me and asks me, like, Matt, did you see anything odd in your last paycheck? And I was like, no. He's like, really? And I'm like... Can't can't imagine what you're talking about. At which point his face falls, and he says to me, "I just wanted to say congratulations on your wedding." Trying to steal the gift that was offered. When we try to like pretend, when we try to tr- put together some sort of trumped up innocence in order to like assure a blessing that God's going to give us anyway, we are trying to steal that which like under false pretenses, that which God wants to give us anyway as a gift. We're trying to earn, claim right to the thing that God actually just wants to give us. That might be a place that you're in today. Finally, and, and, and this is hard, and I, I genuinely, like, this is, this is a high wire act. How, how, do we, how do we name injustice and still move in blessing? Are we called to do that? we called to do that as a church we called to do that as individuals in our lives what would it look like to name injustice and still move in blessing